This is Austin Real Estate Investing. Austin Real Estate Investing. We'll be discussing real estate investing in Austin, Texas, and bringing you experts from all different sectors of the real estate game. Your host, Jordan Moorhead, is a real estate agent and investor in Austin and is here to help you get started or to build your portfolio and explore new strategies. Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead with the Austin Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, we have a really special guest on. We have Mo Anderson, who went from being a tenant farmer's daughter to CEO of Keller Williams Realty and a partner of Keller Williams Realty. Mo, it's so great to have you on here today. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing really good for an old lady. I'm I'm excited. I'm yeah. excited to be above ground. You're doing <laughs> turned, great. I turned 86 a week ago. That's so, amazing. Yeah, and I'm I'm still excited about real estate. <laughs> That's great to hear. So, Mo, first question, I think it's the most important question that we ask here on our podcast is what's your favorite restaurant here in Austin? True Lux. True Lux? Uh-huh. I love their service and I love their valet parking. Those valet guys are so nice when, when we pull in there. Yeah, I like True Lux a lot. Yeah, that's a common answer. Actually, I've gotten that a few times and I really? actually have not been, so I need to check it out. Oh, you got to go. Yeah. Absolutely. So for those who don't know and anybody associated with Keller Williams will know, who are you and how are you involved with real estate? Well, I was a public school music teacher for 14 years, and um, I grew up in poverty, and when I was about eight years old, I made a commitment to myself that when I grew up, I wanted to make more money than I needed because I was so frustrated not being able to give anybody a birthday present or I couldn't buy my parents a present at Christmas time. And I quickly discovered that in teaching, you will not make more money than you need. You don't even make as much as you need. <laughs> so one day, my husband came home from Conoco Oil Company in Ponca City, Oklahoma. And he said, I've enrolled you in a class. And I said, you've what? I've enrolled you in a class. What class? A real estate class. Why in the world did you enroll me in a real estate class without asking me? We took the class. I eventually got my broker's license. And then we moved to Edmond. And it was in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is a suburb on the north side of Oklahoma City, that I began my real estate career and I sold real estate for one year. That was back in 1974. I've been in the business for 49 years. Wow. And um, and then the desire to have our own company was kind of seeded in my mind because I knew my real skills would be in probably building companies to be profitable uh, so our agents could have great profit sharing checks. And so we started our own company and we had that company for 10 years. We bought a Century 21 franchise and Jordan, I'm so proud of this. We were number three in Century 21 out of 7,500 offices in the U.S. and Canada. And you Is were that in Oklahoma. Right? In, in Oklahoma, in yeah. Little Edmond, Oklahoma. We were number three in the nation for several years. And then Merrill Lynch decided they wanted to enter the real estate business. So they came and made us an offer for our company that was probably two or 300,000 more than what we thought it was worth. And um, and we sold it 
we made a 2000 plus percent return on our investment. And that's the day I fell in love with owning asset based businesses. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how I got in real estate. Richard kind of pushed me mm-hmm. into real estate. He saw how hard I worked as a teacher, and he thought if I could get her in real estate, she'd really make the money. Well, guess what? It worked out, yeah. <laughs> it worked out pretty good. Yeah. So, so that's how I got into real estate. Mm-hmm. And I opened Oklahoma. It was the first region to to rise up outside of Texas. And so I had the first region. For Keller Williams. For Keller Williams. And we did so well because I followed the model to the T. I'm a great model follower. (laughs) And um, because we did so well, Gary was pretty sure it was because of his models and systems well, I was pretty sure it was because we had the right people <laughs> in in the leadership group. So um, after two years, I think it was either two or three years, he asked me to come and be his partner and help him grow Keller Williams internationally. <clears throat> so when I went there as CEO. And by the way, I was the first female CEO of a of a real estate company. On top of that, I'd never had a business class in my life. (laughs) So boy, did I love having him as a mentor. And, and I took all the KW classes they had back then several times each. And when I started, we had 1,800 agents in Keller Williams, and I believe that was 92. So it would have been three years later. So I moved down there in 95. And when I was exhausted and ready to replace myself, I think it was 2012, but it may have been 2010. I just can't remember. And I was really tired because we were so small back then. Everybody thought we were idiots. They thought we were an Amway company. They thought it would never work. Well, I knew it would work because in my company that I sold to Merrill Lynch, we profit shared on two levels. I had an ALC that functioned just like Gary's ALC. And then uh, I didn't have Gary's economic model, but I saw the brilliance in his model because it's almost recession proof. Because when you have a dip in the market, who leaves? The newer people. Yeah. And your solid cappers and your top agents thrive in a shifting market. So when I left and replaced myself with Mark Willis, we had 50,000 agents. Wow. So you started at 1,800 and got it up to 50,000 when you left. And now we're at 190 or whatever the number is. Huge. We're in 52 countries. Now, I opened Canada and then set up the structure to do the research in Asia and Europe. to see what we could do there. Now, Canada, their accounting system is almost identical to what we do in the U.S. So um, that's what I did. And then I stayed in Austin for an additional four or five years and just did special projects and helped Mark and you know, all of that. And so I go back and forth. I have a home in Oklahoma City. I'm in my Oklahoma City home right now. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, a lovely little home in Austin, four minutes from the office. Oh, nice. So I don't have to fight the traffic. Yeah. When you joined and there was 1800 agents, how many regions or areas was that? Um, when I joined, I think, well, we were the first region. And then when I came to Austin as CEO, mm-hmm. if 
I recall we had by we had I think we had seven regions. Okay. And in the first and we had 45 offices when I first went to Austin. And I closed 15 of them because they weren't productive. And I foreclosed, I think it was five regions. Now, we kept the regions going, but I removed the leadership. Okay. So I kind of became known as the Velvet Hammer. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I loved on them, and then I stuck the dagger in and said, this is not acceptable. You have 30 days, blah, 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 blah. And then I loved on them some more. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it's so easy to look at that as, oh, that that's mean or something like that. But you're really being helpful to people and helping them find their purpose. Well, I had a uh, an owner in Florida, and he was using his retirement funds. And honestly, Jordan, he hadn't done anything. He was losing massive amounts of money every month. So I hopped on an airplane, flew to Florida, sat down across the table from him, and I said, I respect your capital more than you do. Wow. And because I do, and because my conscience will not let me let you lose any more money, you have 30 days to sell the office. And he didn't have anything to sell, but a few desks and a copy machine. And so he couldn't find a buyer. So I shut him down and everybody goes, oh, you shut down an office. That's terrible. I said, no, we will earn respect in that marketplace because everybody knew he was failing. Mm -hmm. And so we reassigned that territory to somebody really, really good. And they flourished and thrived. Awesome. And I I know you when i when i heard you speak at the event we met at you were talking a lot about the culture of keller williams would you mind talking a little bit on the culture of keller williams now well everybody every business in the world has a culture mm-hmm. the question is does that culture cause people to thrive or does it kind of smash them down And in some businesses, the culture is very upbeat and positive and causes people to thrive and flourish. Uh, Culture is needed because it brings stability, it brings unity, it brings uh, standards. And I, I learned being a public school music teacher, the importance of standards. And I'm so glad I learned that because that's one of the most important things in building a business. Because when you have a high standard, people rise up to it. When you don't have standards, people go down. And I learned that being a teacher in a school with poverty kids. And see, I grew up in poverty, so they had nothing on me. I didn't let them get by with the thing, and I didn't feel sorry for them. And I had high standards because I wanted them to experience what it felt like doing something really well, where it was well done, and the feeling you have when you succeed. And it was really a wonderful, rewarding time that I couldn't make any money. So in Keller Williams, basically what I did was I cleaned it up and then I set the standards and I wouldn't veer an inch from those standards. And um, I think that's what allowed me to be successful when I didn't even have a business class. That's weird. Yeah. You know, Gary Keller really needs a pat on the back because I was 57 years old when he asked me to move to Austin and I was a woman and I didn't have any business classes. 
Richard keeps telling me that the business classes would have ruined me. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I kind of function from just intuition, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. <clears throat> yeah, so I actually didn't know what a tenant farmer was. It made sense when I when I looked. I looked it up. Um, so a tenant farmer, and correct me if I'm wrong, is somebody who rents the land and farms it they rent it from a landowner and you farm it that way hey guys this is jordan moorhead here and i wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me if you could go leave a review for this podcast wherever you're listening to it that would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about austin real estate investing and i'd be able to help more people thanks guys what they actually do it's really more like a sharecropper the farmer comes onto the land, and then when the crop is harvested, if hail hasn't taken it out, and back then we didn't have any insurance, he gives the owner a third of the crop. He puts a third of the crop into the granaries so that he can plant the wheat again in the fall, and then hopefully... After you pay the, the bills of running the machinery and harvesting the crop, you have something left over. It usually isn't a third. <laughs> yeah. Well, because all your expenses come out of your third, it sounds like. That's right. So it's tough. It's yeah. real tough. And. I'm, I'm sure they didn't have a all the modern farming methods and machinery and you can't farm near as much land as right. you can today so probably we didn't have electricity up. we didn't no. have an indoor john we did not have indoor water we had no. a well that we would go to the well and pump the water no. so my parents i admire so much because they came out of the great depression and the um dust bowl day i remember the dust bowl days i was five or six you know and i i can remember how my mother would put a cloth around my face to breathe really and those clouds of dust would roll in and sometimes they'd come as far north as nebraska you know they would be rolling south mm -hmm. oh it was awful yeah that sounds so where did you and go then, where I, where in oklahoma were you born I, I was born near a little bitty town called ames oklahoma which was um probably 25 miles from enid oklahoma which is in the northern part of the state mm -hmm. and then we eventually moved to an area, a little town called Drummond. We had a, we rented a farm. Well, we didn't rent it. We just sharecropped it uh, near Drummond. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, we moved to a little town, which is eight miles south of Enid. And it's called Wacomas. And uh, that's where Richard and I graduated from high school. Oh, and wow. we married when we were 20, which is way too young. Oh, really? And in August, we will have been married 66 years. That's amazing. <laughs> so is that when you started teaching music? Uh-huh. That's right. After I graduated from OU, I worked my way through OU. What did you work? What did you do through college when you were working? I worked for a, a a Lutheran church as a secretary, so I would work quite a bit during each day, and I typed his sermons, I ran the old-fashioned copier with the gel stuff. <laughs> How did that work? I'm not familiar. Yeah, you're too young, darling. So it's like a printing press type of thing. Yeah, you'd print you would print the church bulletin, you know, that you hand to the people when they come in, so they know the order of service. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, cool. 
and I made a dollar an hour. I was so excited because I had a job at OU for 50 cents an hour, and I decided to call all the churches. And the Lutherans needed a person, and I interviewed for the job and got it and got paid a dollar. I was so excited. Amazing. What was college per year at that time? I don't remember, but it wasn't much compared to what it is now. I really, I really don't remember. Maybe a few hundred bucks? Um, no, it, I would say a couple of thousand, maybe. Okay. And then you're, you know, you have room and board. Uh, <clears throat> and then we got married between our sophomore and junior year. And um, Richard was at OU on a a full-ride basketball scholarship. So he had all of his expenses paid. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, Miss Mo, I know you built some amazing companies, and you had a lot to do with building Keller Williams to the company it is today. Have your investments just been in companies, or have you invested in real estate, too? Um. We've invested in both. Okay. I own several. uh, We own several offices, and then we have a lot of real estate investments. Okay. So offices is in Keller Williams offices? Yes. Okay. That's the only one I would ever own because I love the model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great model. I think like you talked about – a lot of people don't know that, but they do share their profits with their agents. And it's it's actually a big piece of the profit, too. People think it's just a real small amount, but it's really... It's, a, it can go up to 48% of the yeah, profit. It's huge. When you really learn the model, it's amazing. So um, that's that's great. And we didn't really invest in Austin we invested in Oklahoma City and we invested in Enid. We've invested in our little town. You know, part of our mission statement is a legacy worth leaving. Mm-hmm. That's part of our mission statement for Keller Williams. And I think Richard's going to have the best legacy in the world because he bought a block on one side of the street in our dead, pitiful little town. It is so beautiful. It looks like it came from a Hallmark movie. So look it up on the internet and look up, uh, see if you can find Buffalo Junction and Buffalo, (laughs) excuse me, Buffalo Retreat. Oh, cool. Because when he's gone, he will have left a an amazing legacy. We put little shops in there and they're working hard and doing a couple of them are doing pretty well. And we're going to give those businesses to the people that built them. And I'm excited about that. And the little town is coming alive again. And Richard built a restaurant and he named it Moe's Place. Oh, wow. That's amazing. What kind of food do they serve at Moe's Place? Oh, it's just the little small town Okay. menu. So Fried of, this and fried that. <laughs> typical American fare. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Awesome. So um, uh, people always ask me, what mistake did you make in your investing? Mm-hmm. Well, the mistake... Oh, and we we have invested in 50 acres in downtown Oklahoma City, the last piece of downtown Oklahoma City. And um, the mistake we made was that we veered off into investments about which we knew nothing. See, we know real estate, but... <clears throat> We invested a half a million dollars in a bank. And then remember when all the banks went down, or maybe you were too young. In the 80s? In the 80s. Yeah. 
And um, our mistake was we were diversified in all the wrong things. So when the oil bust hit at the end of the 80s, and it affected Texas, Colorado, Oklahoma, you know, the oil patch, it was so sad because people who had generational wealth, you know, went under and we lost, we lost so much money. We lost all of our savings and we lost, you know, some of the investments and we were really close to bankruptcy, but we just, my daddy taught me that no matter what you pay your bills. So we began to work really hard to um, work work out something with the owners of our investments. And it took 10 years for us to crawl out of that. When Gary uh, heard about me and he found me, I said, look, Gary, we've just had a major disaster in this oil bust. We don't have any money. I can't do anything. I can't buy a region because I don't have any money. I think I can find some. And he said, well, Mo, I don't have my documents ready. And I said, well, in that case, all I have to do is ask you for permission to use your systems and models. You give it to me in writing because Oklahoma is a non-disclosure state. So I don't have to have a document in Oklahoma. Now, later, he got the documents done. And a number of months later, he got them all done. So uh, we actually went into business on a handshake. Wow. And a letter. <laughs> and uh, we really did good. Oh, yeah. So your your advice, your investing advice for people is don't get into investments that you don't understand. I I think that's good advice. Now, if you've got a competent um investment analyst or a competent uh, investment person, mm -hmm. you know, that might not be true if you, if you really had a good one. But if you're doing this by yourself, stick with what you know, mm -hmm. because, um, and I know real estate offices and I know dirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, clearly 50 acres right in the middle of downtown Oklahoma City and bad. Well, we're we're just part of the investment group. Oh, cool. But let me tell you, we we may be dead and gone when it's all developed. Our kids will benefit from it, but that's exciting when you have land in major what's metro left downtown yeah. Oklahoma City. Yeah. So we have a lot of money invested in real estate. And we have a lot of money invested in philanthropic um, ventures where we help ministries and charities and all of that. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about that real quick. What are the interesting or, or exciting charities for you? What do you like to invest in philanthropically? Um, I'm interested in the elderly, so that means we do quite a bit with Meals on Wheels because they serve food to the elderly who are homebound and can't get out. And, uh, well, we, we um, give to 43 entities. Um, I love um, one that we do. It's it's um, a ministry that services children of incarcerated parents and a team with a video camera goes into the prison. The prisons give permission and the mother reads the book to the child. And then she tells the child about where she gets her food in the cafeteria and what kind of a bed she sleeps on. Because these little children, 
we had a fundraiser at, at our house one night, and one little boy said he he couldn't sleep at night because he envisioned his mother in a cage, Whoa. you know, like a dog cage. And when they get these videos and they see that their mom is okay and she is coached and she speaks encouraging words to the to the child, they watch those videos every night before they go to sleep. And there are several videos that are done during the course of the year. And then um, the OU football team, I don't know if they still do it, but the OU football team would come up and play with those kids in a park. And they would be so excited, you know, to meet real players. (laughs) And then I love uh, the homeless we do uh, quite a bit for city rescue mission i would i would say those are probably my three top favorites but there are 43 of them i can't remember them all kelly has to keep me keep me on track with that that's a big list yeah it sounds like you're really well diversified in all the charities you're given to also yeah but that's so amazing that they're you know, because you you don't think about who's affected by someone that ends up in prison. You know, and a small child just doesn't know anything. It's crazy to think that they would think they're in a cage in there, but not. I'm they sure. have weird, you know, ideas that aren't realistic. We uh, built a chapel in um, one of the prisons. Um, my cousin is a builder and. He spent his life building chapels in prisons when they would let him. And uh, now they show the inside of the chapel on those videos so that they know their moms have a nice place to meet for Bible study or maybe hear a speaker or whatever. And um, then they have a little church service on Sundays. And so it's called the Anderson Chapel. That's really I've got pictures hanging in a hanging on the wall of the chapel. <laughs> That's great. It's just a, such a good well to, a good way to help people rehabilitate and then help their families be okay too. Have you wanted to be part of GoBundance, the tribe of millionaires, but just haven't hit that millionaire status yet? Well, now you can, not even being a millionaire, by joining our new program, GoBundance Emerge. My name's Jamie Gruber, creator of GoBundance Emerge and member of the GoBundance community. And now you can join GoBundance.com slash Emerge, GoBundance.com slash Emerge. Use code Jordan for $100 off this 12-week goal-setting program and mastermind that'll propel you to being a whole life millionaire. Well, you know, I've always said that if every business, every charity, every um, church, synagogue, mosque, whatever is in the city, if every uh, civic club had a philanthropic model like Keller Williams has, there would be no need for welfare because I have tried to teach Keller Williams agents that we take care of our own first and then we reach out. So see, we have we have KW Cares where we take care of our own. Oh my goodness, the tragedies that occur in families, it's just shocking. And it's so wonderful that we have the funds to give them a grant to help them. Um one is the couple in in Colorado who drove off to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. And on the way to the restaurant, a random gang came along beside their car and shot them. He oh came out of it pretty good, but she became a paraplegic because of where the bullets landed in her body. And I don't know what those people would have done without KW Cares. And then, you know, when the national disasters happen, the tornado tornado in Joplin, Missouri, um, the uh, hurricanes, the fires in California, those are monster projects. 
Like on the last hurricane, we spent three and a half million helping our people. And we have these trucks that are filled with goods and we try to station them as close to the city where the problem has occurred so they can get in there first and then our people can get the supplies they need. And then we have hired people to come and muck their houses, pulling down the sheetrock and all of that. Um, I don't know if you were at Mega Camp when Houston had their flood. Yeah, Harvey. Uh, we sent 78 buses. We sent all the mega agents to Houston to help the people because they made us give up the convention center because they were needing to put people in the convention center who had been made homeless. Yeah, That was several years ago. That and was 2015, it, right? 2015, yeah, 2016, I yeah. I, I don't remember when it was, but. I'm just so proud of KW Cares, and our people give about six million a year, and um, and and I'm trying to be very frugal with the money and put some aside because when these big things happen, you know, we've gone from maybe a million and a half to three and a half million because of inflation and. The years have gone by, and um, I'm trying to keep the savings kitty filled with at least twenty million, so that if we have three or four uh, na national disasters at the same time, we can handle them all. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they're happening more frequently. Yeah. Then we have K, KW Kids Can, and that's where we search for the young entrepreneurs, and we teach them entrepreneurial lessons. And then if they invent something and need a patent and they don't have any money, they can apply for a grant to get their patent. And if they are real smart and want to go to college and their parents can't quite swing it, they can apply to get a a small uh, a small scholarship to help them with their tuition. And that is just a wonderful program. And then we have Red Day. And that's where the agents stop working for part of the day or all of the day, depending on the situation. And they go into the community and they give back. Uh, I am so proud of the Edmund office. They have given over $8 million to the charities in Edmond, Oklahoma, over a, over the course of eight years. So they've been giving about an average of about a million a year. And they do a 5K run. I think uh, that amazing? that's, yeah, that's just amazing. And I think just the easiest one to do that we did Red Day one year and we just went around and picked up trash around the city. It's so easy and it makes such a difference too. You you drive around, you don't see any trash anywhere anymore because people just went out with a few trash bags and they each picked up a few bags of trash. Just such a simple they, way to help. That's just wonderful. And so we've tried to teach our people that that the money we get in for these projects, we must tithe. And so we tithe to MD Anderson. We tie the cancer center because a lot of our people have cancer and they help us get the people in because we've given them a lot of money over the years. And we give to a veterans program that builds houses for those who come back without arms or legs. And then we give to Ryan's Well, and that's a Canadian charity that builds wells in Africa so the people have good water. We've been doing them for 20-some years. Wow. And they have been so responsible. And if you go over there where they're building the wells, they build a cement thing, and it says KW Well. It's a, <laughs> it's a KW Well. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
do you have any idea how many they've built in 20 years? Oh my, they they're probably well, I hate to guess because I may get it way wrong, but they have a lot. And it costs so much to build a well. And the money that comes in, they'll build the wells according to how much comes in. Mm -hmm. So um, culture involves not only standards for productivity and standards for the way we treat each other. You know, that's our Y4C2Ts. Um, that's a little acronym for some words like the W stands for win, win or no deal. The I I'm is integrity, do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I love the win, win or no deal. I think that that's in real estate, especially both parties need to feel like they've won and they need to win and they can in, in every circumstance too. And I think everybody thinks so this person has to get the upper hand or this person has to lose. And it doesn't have to be that way. So uh, we really have four pillars to our culture. The first pillar is, is our uh, MVVBP, our mission, vision, our values, and our perspectives, our beliefs, and then our perspectives, mm -hmm. MVVBP. And then the second pillar is, of course, we pull out of that the Y4C2Ts. And then we teach the six personal perspectives. And I love this class. Dave Jinks and Gary created that class. And I tell everybody who comes into Keller Williams, they need to take it at least five times because you don't get everything unless you repeat it. Mm -hmm. And these are the six ways that a person needs to think in order to be a match for Keller Williams. And um, then the last pillar is a piece called What is Culture? And it's just a little piece that Kay Evans and I and some agents, some top agents designed. And it, it's things like um, Give seven hugs a day or you get weird. <laughs> it's like pay somebody's bill anonymously where they don't know who paid it. The MCA would know. The market center administrator would know. But uh, it just lists 52 things that that we do when we're in culture and it helps agents understand what a cultured office looks like. Mm -hmm. And um, I love that piece. And of course the key is a team leader understanding that all those four pieces need to be talked about all the time. You never stop talking about them because everything in real estate changes interest rates, uh, MLS rules, you name it, it'll change. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that does not change is our culture. And the reason is because it's based on eternal truths. You know, you hear everybody say, but my truth is whatever. And I look at them and I say, you know, I'm not interested in your truth. <laughs> I'm interested in the truth. Do you get my point? Oh, yeah. <laughs> because there are universal rules that are true. And um, and so to have a cultured office, the team leader, the leadership has to buy into it. The ALC has to buy into it. And team leaders need to be taught how to get the ALC informed and educated. And then in every team meeting, you have a cultural moment <laughs> and you teach everybody to become culture watchers. And what did you see this week in this office that was just a wonderful cultural moment? Mm -hmm. So and the then, agent, agent Leadership Council was around when you joined already? Yes, yes, okay. it was. It was created by Gary's first ALC. 
And what is funny is the agent advisory council that I had in my office in Edmond functioned almost identically hmm. to his ALC. Sounds like you had similar values. Yeah. Yeah. A kind of an interesting experience you might be interested in. When I was CEO, uh, a professor from Stanford University called me and said, can I write a white paper on your culture? Because we notice you're the only company that flourishes when there's the downturn in the economy up to that point. In every downturn, we got better. And he said, I want to study your culture and write a white paper. And I said, well, yes, you can do that if you come to watch me teach a three-day seminar and you'll stay two extra days to meet the team. And then you have to allow us to read it to make sure it's accurate because I'm not going to let you put something out that's not true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he did. So the course writer, I mean, the the uh, white paper writer came and he did a wonderful job. And it's been updated two or three times and it's somewhere on the Internet. I don't know how to find it. I have my tech person find it for me. Isn't that awful? What uh, would it be called if somebody wanted to look it up? Uh, Stanford white paper on Keller Williams. I okay. think we we'll find it. Probably find it that way, yeah. And so then the professor in Stanford took a job at Yale. So when he had his MBA students, he always had them study that white paper. And then he would invite me to come so they could ask me questions. And every time I went, which I think was eight years in a row, something like that, the first question out of their mouth was, doesn't that value statement that you have called God and family first and the business second hurt you? And I would always answer by saying, I cannot believe that a farm girl from Oklahoma could teach you anything. But I've got a gym for you. So get out your pencils and your paper and write this sucker down. <laughs> so they did. And I said, that statement serves as a magnet to attract like-minded people. We're like-minded on that issue, no matter what your faith is. You know, if you're Hindu, Buddhist, whatever you are, whatever you profess to believe, that and your family are the most important things. And then your business is next. And I said, what you don't realize is although we're not like-minded in politics, we're not like-minded in a whole bunch of things. When you are like-minded in something as powerful as faith, family, and um, then the business, it, it bonds you together. And then when you hear the Keller Williams mission statement, uh, building careers worth having, businesses worth owning, lives worth living, experiences worth giving or receiving, either one, uh, and legacies worth leaving. When they, when these, this group of people who loves their faith, their family, and put the business later, um, I mean, put the business next, when they buy into that, you have power you cannot imagine. And that's why we flourish. We have flourished in all of the downturns. Yeah. So speaking of, it seems it seems as if we're either going into a recession or in a recession. And I know for for my personal business, when we've always kept kept the client first, we've always just continued to do well. Do you have any advice for agents or real estate investors heading into what seems like it would be a recession? I know the the advice of 
invest in what you know is always important. But any other advice for agents or investors right now? Yeah, I do. And it's this. Quit talking about how bad the market is. Hush. Shut up about it. Because the market is now normal. What we had the last three years was craziness. And people paid way too much for houses. When they go to sell them, it's going to be a problem. And just understand that we've come back down to normal. Uh, interest rates are what? Six for a house, it's six point what? Six, six and a half or so. Six and a half. And the average for the last 10 years was seven. We haven't even hit the average yet. So quit your whining and complaining and go lead generate three hours a day and follow the models and work your systems. And you're just going to make more money than you ever thought you could. Yes, ma'am. It's people getting scared because they keep hearing recession. Well, we may go into a recession. Mm -hmm. And if we do, we just keep lead generating four hours a day. Because when you're in recession, you up your lead generation. You up your ads. You up all of that when you're in recession. But right now, you're in normality. So enjoy it while you got it. <laughs> That's my advice. And I, I heard Gary say the same thing uh, last week. I was at his mastermind here in Austin, and he talked about, you know, here's the trend line for home prices. We're still above the trend line. You know, here's the the median interest rate. We're still below that. You know, so I think the same could be said for real estate investors: is when you're having trouble finding deals, put more effort out there to find deals. Do more lead generation to find your deals whether you're an agent or an investor. Jordan Moorhead here. Really quickly, wanted to tell you a couple other ways you can keep track of us. If you want to listen to all these podcasts and ask questions, the Moorhead team on YouTube is the best place to be. And then Austin Real Estate Investors on Meetup is a great place to keep track of all of our meetups we have going on. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's uh, real simple, <laughs> actually. Yeah, it's it's easy to think it's not because it's hard it's harder or it's it's more work than you'd like it to be sometimes but it's very simple well at family reunion this year gary asked me to be on stage with him during the state of the company were you there uh, i was not able to make it actually I had a family event that got in the way of that yeah and uh, so when we walked out on the stage, Gary looks at me and he said, well, what are we going to, he took me and Mark King out on stage. Mm -hmm. He said, what are we going to talk about? And I said, well, I have something I want to say to the agents. And he said, go for it. And I said, you have been listening all morning to Gary talking about how bad the market is. <laughs> mm -hmm. I said, you he's taught you everything you know all about it now stop that stop listening to how bad it is because it's now normal and i want you to think to think of this attitude about the market as goliath and I want you to be David and you get back home and you put a stone in your little slingshot and let's go kill Goliath and show the world that we can flourish when the market becomes normal. That's I, he probably advice. wanted to hit me, but I didn't care. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice, though. I think, you know, we we were in such a, an enthusiasm. It felt like the... Man, what's the the Dutch were the Dutch tulips the tulip mania it felt like where we were and now we've come back to reality because we were used to tulip mania reality feels slow yeah and we're just back to normal and I really love that Mo so Miss Mo what's what's on the docket for you I know you were telling me here earlier your your assistant keeps you scheduled out for 18 months in advance what do you have to look forward to this next 18 months? Well, I have a lot of um, uh, regional events that that I'm doing, like I'll be in North Carolina region 
I think it's the first week or so of June. And and then I, I, I don't remember where I'm going. Kelly tracks all that. I just look at it in a week at a time. Yeah. And so I have I have a lot of fun things that that I'll be enjoying uh, because I love to go into an area and encourage people and kind of get on them. uh, The velvet hammer, you know, and say, quit your whining and complaining, go sell houses and make money. (laughs) So uh, I have many months of fun, interesting things. I have a speech I'm going to give to a club here in Edmond, um, and they want me to talk about hope. And I'm real excited about that because when we moved to Edmond, it was like a move of hope. Maybe I can find a profession that will allow me to make more money than I need so I can give it away. because. When you're when you grow up in poverty and you don't have anything and you wear your feed sack dresses to school and your shoes with holes in them and <clears throat> you're embarrassed for somebody to come to your house because, you know, there's no indoor bathroom. There's no all of that. Um, it is so joyful to give. I can't begin to tell you how much joy I find in being able to give. And maybe a good friend has a tragedy and we're able to help them. I just, I just love that. So for me, the joy is being able to encourage other people. And I want to be a role model for all of our agents that you do not have to quit just because you turn 65. Because if you quit, you'll rot and die. Oh, wow. I've lost so many friends. It's unreal because they quit. And I'm I'm just determined, you know, to go on. And then when the good Lord calls me to my real home, that's great. But I want to be productive up to that time. So I I haven't quit. I'm still going like crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just hope agents look at me and say, I can't believe she is still working and she's 86. And I go to the doctor's office or something and they say, Because my insurance, my primary is through Keller Williams International. And they say, are you still working in your 80s, whatever you are? And I say, you bet I am. I'm going to work into my 90s. (laughs) Well, I just watched uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. What was it? A week or two ago. And he's in his 90s and Charlie is 99. And they're still going after it. So I know it keeps you. It keeps you alive and it keeps you young. When I was a child, my very favorite uncles retired at the same time, three of them, and they were dead in two years. Each of them died within two years of retirement. And I know it's because they lost their purpose. Mm -hmm. They got tired of playing golf. They got tired of sailing in their sailboats. And they were gone. So I grew up thinking retirement kills you <laughs> because they all three died. <laughs> you sure do see see the the, the downward slope start when you retire because you, you're not out doing something stimulating every day. Right. Miss Mo, I know we're we're running out of time here. I want to talk a little bit about you have a book that you just came out with. A Joy-Filled Life, Lessons from a Tenant Farmer's Daughter Who Became CEO. Yes. I wrote the book to honor my parents, and I really wrote it for my grandchildren. And I thought about getting maybe a couple of hundred copies because I didn't think anybody would want to read it but them. And... um 
N.A., Kelly and several others talked me into doing 10,000 books in the first run. And, of course, it came out several years ago. But what is interesting is it's still selling on Amazon. It's crazy. Um, I just can't believe it. We have moved 45,000 books. And the warehouse, the Keller Williams Book Warehouse, ran out and I've ordered several thousand more and um I don't know if they'll all go but that book is still going there are teachers using it in their schools because it's divided into lessons and uh the chapters are each a lesson and there are book clubs using it it's just I'm just shocked because Gary wanted he he wanted to know if I wanted him to publish publish it, and I said no. I really want it to be my book, and so I went through uh, a publisher in Austin called Greenleaf, and they did a marvelous job. So, forty five thousand copies later, it's still still going. I. I, I I spoke at a recruit thing today that one of our offices was having, and they had top 14 top producers there. And about half of them had read my book. And all almost all of them had read the red book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. But I just couldn't believe they'd read mine. And they they had. How long did it take you to write that book? Oh, I'm embarrassed to tell you. It was really a struggle because writing is not natural to me. I have to really, really work at it. It took me about nine years to finally get it to the press. Yeah, that's a it, books take a while. It's just so much work. I think people underestimate oh, their work. So and they you... kind of hang over your head all the time. I need to be working on my book. Mm-hmm. But I hate writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I feel like I accomplished the goal. I wanted it to be like a conversation between me and the reader. And I can't tell you how many people have said, when I read your book, Mo, it was like you were just talking to me. And I went, ching, X in the box. <laughs> Yeah, mission accomplished there. That's great. So, Miss Mo, do you have any advice for any realtors or real estate investors that are just getting started that are listening here? Just some parting advice, last words for them? Uh, I would encourage them to find a commercial real estate agent who has experience and a, a vast amount of, of knowledge. And then I would encourage them to employ an investment analyst who's familiar with real estate. So when the agent brings the deal, the investment analyst will give his opinion of it because he has no emotion in the deal and he he will be objective. For example, my grandson is an investment analyst and he works for a family who's very wealthy and they buy and sell properties all the time. So he does the anal- uh, analysis on that property and then he either pitches it or he tells them why they shouldn't do it. Uh, if you're not experienced in investing, Mm-hmm. Uh, even though you're a real estate agent, if you're not experienced in multifamily or office buildings or commercial buildings or whatever, you need you need a good attorney, you need a good CPA and a really good agent. Now, my grandson is building his rental portfolio and he has a Keller Williams agent that cues him in on the deals and he's really good and um and connor's making money he's only been out of college two years he's making money on multifamily and on rentals already he's got a portfolio of three rentals 
He's got one multifamily and he's about to buy another one. He makes 43000 a year in cash flow off of that one multifamily because it's uh, real close to the OU campus mm. in Norman. Yeah, I think it, and he's starting so young. That's amazing because it's it's really not about timing the market. It's about the time in the market, especially with real estate. So right. he'll be in such a good spot later. So that's what I recommend, unless you're real smart yourself. Mm -hmm. So find good partners or find find good people to work with you. Yeah. And if you're putting a deal together with someone, be sure you review their financial statement. And I would do the KPA on them mm -hmm. to dig a little deeper. And then the third thing I would do would be to have them give me references and I would go three deep. Yeah. So three deep. Let me, because let me tell you, a whole lot of those real estate investment deals break up because the wrong partners are in place. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you don't want that. No, not at all. Miss Mo, thank you so much for coming on here today. I've really appreciated it. Everybody that listens to this needs to go out and get your book, A Joy-Filled Life, Lessons from a Tenant Farmer's Daughter Who Became a CEO. And you've just have so much knowledge to share with everybody. It's been such a joy. Well, you can't imagine how honored I felt when you called and asked. I thought, I can't believe Jordan's calling me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I know you get tons of calls, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Well, it was my joy. Well, thank you, Miss Mo. And I'm sure we'll see you here soon at a Keller Williams event. I'm sure we will. So you come up and give me a great big hug. I will. Thank you and have a great day. Okay, bye.